Well, if you take your Bible with me today and in the book of Job, chapter number one, Job chapter number one, you'll find the scripture today, Job chapter number one. And my subject is how God restrains sin in society. How God restrains sin in society and how America is tearing it down. And in Job chapter 1, you'll find the scriptures to support that thesis today. Verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. The Lord said to Satan, whence comest thou? Where'd you come from? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth or hateth evil? And Job answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for naught? Have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth your hand. And so Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And my text today is verse 10. Have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side and blessed the work of his hands? And now his substance is increased. Thank you, and you may be seated. How God restrains sin in a culture, and how America is tearing those restraints down. Satan charged God here in this passage with building a hedge of protection around Job. And for maybe the only time in his life, Satan didn't lie. Satan was telling the truth here. Now, the word hedge has to have a little context for us today because in Bible times, hedges were used as fences. Bushes were planted close together to form a wall or a barrier that would then define the boundaries of a property. So a person buying a field, for example, would plant a hedge row, they called it, all around that piece of property to define the boundaries. But the hedges had another purpose, and that was to keep out animals, or to keep their animals in, their sheep or cows or whatever it was, and to keep the thieves and the predators out. And so the hedges had a double purpose. In the book of Hosea, chapter 2 and verse number 6, Hosea refers to a hedge of thorns. And the reason he called it that was because that those hedgerows were planted in bushes that had these long Palestinian thorns on them. And so if you tried to 
walk through that or push through that or up against it, you would be pricked with those thorns. It would tear your flesh. You would get all kinds of wounds, and it was a very, very painful thing. So the animals wouldn't try to penetrate those hedgerows, nor would uh, other people. It was a protection for them. Now, in that sense today, I want to develop the message because God uses four mechanisms that he puts in place in a culture to restrain sin and evil in society. And when those four mechanisms are functioning well, when those hedges are in place, then a society is going to be far more righteous. No society has ever been a perfectly righteous society, but it's going to be far more righteous than it would have been had had those things not been in place. So God's hedges of protection, if you will, in the culture. Now, the reason God did that is because that men are sinners. Ever since the Garden of Eden, man has had a problem. He has an evil heart. He has an evil nature. The Bible is very, very clear about that. And if you're a Christian today, of course, you believe that. And so sin is in us as well as around us. And sin is so underestimated, I think, by the average Christian today. You see, sin is a raging monster in our hearts. And it must be restrained, or it's like a beast that would turn upon us and it would devour us. Sin is like an out-of-control forest fire. It will burn and burn and burn until there's nothing left to burn unless somebody comes along and externally extinguishes it. In the same way, sin will absolutely take over a human being and devour them, consume them. And so God has put into place certain hedges of protection in, cult, in the culture. And if those hedges remain strong, we'll have a great deal more righteousness in the culture. But when those restraints are torn down, then, of course, there's nothing to hold back to restrain the tide of evil. In the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 5, and in the 8th verse, Peter gives us this counsel. He says, be sober and be vigilant for your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion. And he pictures a wild beast on the loose in the street. Your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. He uses the word devour because sin is a devouring force, as I just described. Like the out-of-control forest fire, like the monster within us, it will eat us up and spit us out and devour us. And in my tenure as a minister of the gospel, how many people have I seen? And and they gave place to some sin in their life, and they didn't deal with it scripturally. And they allowed it to get a foothold, a a beach hold, if you will. And before long, their life was a shambles. They had been devoured by the monster from within. Now, God has put these four mechanisms into place. They're from Him. But what is so tragic today, ladies and gentlemen, is we're living at a time when we're seeing our beloved country 
absolutely tear those restraints down. We're seeing America almost as if planned. And I, I, I don't understand where this could be coming from. America set out to tear down the restraints that Almighty God has put in place to restrain and hold back the evil that is about us. The first hedge is God's law that is written in the hearts of men and women. God's law that is written in the heart of every human being. Turn, please, with me to the book of Romans, if you will, in your Bible. Romans chapter number 1 and Romans 1 and 19. Romans 1 and 19. And the apostle Paul writes, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. Now, who is the them? The them goes back to verse 14, where he talks about Greeks, and he talks about barbarians. He's talking about the pagans who have never heard the gospel. The unsaved pagan world that lies in darkness, that has no knowledge of God, no knowledge of the gospel, no knowledge of the Christian faith at all. People who are secularist in our age would be comparable to the pagans of that time. And so the Apostle Paul here says, that which may be known of God is manifested or demonstrated or is seen in them, the pagan world, for God showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him, what are the invisible things of him? Those are the attributes of God that you don't see with your natural eye. Invisible things of God are things like God's power, things like God's wisdom and God's knowledge, God's holiness, God's righteousness. Those are invisible character qualities, if you will. But Paul is saying that the pagan and unsaved world can see those things, though they're invisible qualities. You can see them by the things that are made there in the middle of verse 20. The things that are made. So what he's saying again, and this is a familiar scripture, but it's such an important basic scripture to the whole idea of our faith today. Paul is saying that when an unsaved pagan man or woman looks at the mountains, looks at the sea, looks at the forest, looks at the animal creation that God has made, looks at a human being, at a human body, for example, you know that there was a creator who had, first of all, unbelievable power, and secondly, unbelievable wisdom that he could, in fact, be able to make a human, make a mountain, make a sea, make a planet, make the stars and the moon and the constellations above our heads in the sky. What kind of wisdom and what kind of knowledge, omnipotence and omniscience and power beyond comprehension that there is a being somewhere in this universe and we don't know what he looks like, but we can see the evidence of his existence by the things that he's made. And Paul said there's not a person that's ever been born that uh, couldn't see that. In fact, if you look at the end of verse number 20, he says, so that they are without excuse. The pagan is a, without excuse. A pagan will never be able to stand before God. An unsaved man, an atheist, an unbeliever, nobody will ever be able to stand before Almighty God. 
on the day of judgment and say, you know what, I didn't know anything about you. Because Paul said the simplest-minded person that ever lived can look at the creation and know that somebody had to make that, somebody had to design that, somebody had to plan that. It didn't just happen of itself. The only people that believe that that just happened by itself are college professors. Everybody else I've ever met had good enough sense. They'd not been educated clear out of their their, uh, common sense, and so they believed that somebody had to cause this all to happen, huh? And so God says they're without excuse. Now, because we know that there is a God, we also have implanted with us God's law. He put it within us when he created us. God's law is written in our hearts. And if you've raised a child, you believe that just like I do. How many of you remember when your child was two years old? Just a little thing, dragging his blanket around behind him or her. And they did something that was a disobedient. I mean, you had told them over and over, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And they did it anyhow. And you walked in and you didn't have to say, I've caught you doing it. You looked at their face and guilt was written all over. In fact, here's the way the conversation went. What have you been doing? And they looked at you like, I'm guilty. I've been caught. Did you ever do that with your child? Sure you have. You see, God's law was written in their heart, and their conscience began to speak. And in chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15 here, Paul t- deals with the conscience. And remember when Adam and Eve sinned? They'd been perfect. They had never sinned one time in all their existence. And one day they sinned. And when they did, what was the very first response to sin? They hid themselves. They hid themselves from God. Who told them that what they had done was wrong? Nobody had to tell them. Nobody told them. They knew it intuitively, innately, because God's law is written in our hearts. This is a result of us being made in the image of God. Animals don't feel guilt or they don't have a conscience. The only creature that God made, he made in his image, the man and the woman. And he put within that, he wrote within their heart his law according to Romans 2.15. And we know innately, we know inherently what is right and what is wrong. Now, American culture today is doing everything it can to tear that down. You see, that's a restraint. If a child was raised particularly in a Christian home, but in just a good home, they were taught right and wrong. And that restrains them. When they get ready to do wrong, there's a little voice inside their head that says, no, don't do that. That's wrong. But you see, in America, we're tearing that down. The whole idea today in America is that nobody ought to ever feel guilt. We talk about a no-guilt society. We talk about guiltless discipline. We talk about shame as if people should never feel shame. Guilt and shame are God-given qualities that occur when we know we've done wrong to warn us 
to go in a different direction, to turn us back from our sin. Guilt and shame is God's little warning light on the dashboard of our hearts that says, look, stop. What you're doing is wrong. You're sinning against God. You're sinning against someone else. The first time a person lies, they feel guilt about it because God's written in their heart, thou shalt not lie. You don't have to teach people not to lie. The first time a man and a woman commit an adulterous, enter into an adulterous affair, and they can barely stand to be able to be in the room with their mate after that because guilt and shame rise up. That innate law of God in their heart says, you did wrong. And you need to quit that. You need to repent of that, repent of that sin. And when people habitually violate their conscience, what happens is they desensitize it. Paul describes it like this. Their consciences are seared, seared. They're hardened. They're no longer sensitive to God's voice in their life. And we live in a culture today that tells people guilt is bad. Conscience is bad. Shame is bad. Do whatever you want and don't feel any sense of guilt about it. And we're teaching them to go right through that restraint, that hedge that God built into our lives to keep us from sinning. If your conscience tells you no, listen to it. It's God's voice in your life. If you are doing, if you're on a course of action and you don't feel right about that, Stop. That's God's law written in your heart. You don't have to carry a copy of the Ten Commandments with you all the time. God will speak to you, and when he does, my friend, please listen to him. Don't go through those restraints. Don't break down those hedges. There's a second hedge, and it's in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22. Will you turn with me there? Hedge number two, mechanism number two that God has built into our lives is found in Proverbs 22, verse number 6, and it's the family. The family is God's hedge of protection to restrain sin in a culture, godly families. Now, you know the verse. I could have just quoted it to you, and you could have quoted it along with me probably. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's written to parents, so it's written to family, family units. Look at the word way there, train up a child in the way. And in the book of Proverbs, you see the word way used many times. Over and over, you'll see the word way. And in the book of Proverbs, it gives basically two ways, and it's always pointing them out. Sometimes it calls them by one name and sometimes by another. But the two paths are this. One path is the path of righteousness. It's the path of godliness. And then there is the path of wickedness. There's the path of evil, the path of unrighteousness. And these two paths are always being pointed out with different terminology as you go through the book of Proverbs. And so the Bible says, you put your child on the way of righteousness, the path of righteousness, the road that will lead him or her to a righteous life. Put your child on that path. And how do you do that? Well, 
here's what I would, I, 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 I want to introduce almost a new concept. I've, I've never presented it in this way, and it's so important. I want you to hear it, parents. I'm especially talking to you, those of you who have children still in your home. And, and here's the point. If you look at the word disciple and you work, look at the word discipline, you know what? They look an awful lot don't, alike, don't they? And it's because that they have the same root word, to disciple, to discipline. Now, parent, most of the time we use this word disciple in the context of the church. And so someone gets saved, and we say, well, now that person has come to Christ. They've started following the Lord. We need to disciple them, which means we're going to train them. We're going to help them with the basics of the Christian life. We're going to help them get started on the road of righteousness. We think of discipling people as the church's business. But before there ever was a church, there was God, there was the family. And I submit to you today that the family, the parents in the family, are the primary disciplers in life. So often it's too late by the time they come to church. Their, their feet are already on the other path. And parent, here's the question. Are you discipling your child? It's a form of discipline to train them. In fact, the word train there has the idea of molding and shaping someone's behavior, their character. It's the idea of the woman who has the beautiful rose bush and she plants it beside her house. She puts a trellis back, and as the rose bush grows, she takes the stems, the, the little growths that are going out from the rose bush, and she winds them around the edges of the of the trellis there, and she, she clips, shoots off of it with her scissors, and she trains it, and she shapes it in the shape and in the direction she wants it to go. She is molding the character, if you will, of that rose bush. In the same way today, we parents, we are putting our children's feet on the path of righteousness, and we're shaping their character by what we teach and by what we train and by most of all, by what we model and what we example in front of them. Godly families, I'll tell you, are becoming a rare thing in America. I think if you look around, you will have to agree with me that a family that is really dedicated as a family unit to the Lord, to the Lordship of Christ in their life, to put the Lord Jesus first in every part of their life. Godly families have been so destroyed by this culture. It's just eating our families up. And there's so many problems that are involved today with the family units that I don't have time to go into them. It's not the place and time to do so. Except to say that we've really taken a new awareness of that. Kent Kendall is now serving as our uh, family pastor because we're doing everything that we know how to do. And about the time we geared that up and really had some amazing and awesome plans, well, then along comes the COVID thing, and it's just uncoupled so much of what we want to do. And I've been so disappointed, but believe me, we've got plans, and we will do them. Ken is working at it very hard right now. He's down there in the gym with your children holding a 
children's worship service that is, is designed exactly to do what I'm talking about here. But we, we can't do that without you. We can't do that without you. We need your support, your encouragement, your cooperation. We need you to serve with us and help us in that regard. The, the whole philosophy today is so upside down. And look at our families. Look at the distress our families are in today. I recently became a member of the board of the Palmetto Family Council, a statewide organization, and they asked me to come and work with them. And I sat there and listened for three hours one day to the people that are so knowledgeable in all this, talking about the impact of abortion on families, talking about the impact of the LGBT emphasis and the same-sex marriage and what that's doing in the, in, in the homes of South Carolina. Satan hates the family because he knows that where there's godly families, there's restraint of sin. Number three, there's a third hedge, and it's called the government. It's in Romans chapter 13. I preached on it just a few weeks ago, but it's so relevant. I must not, I must not stop here. Romans 13 and 1, let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power and that word was authority, if you remember. There's no authority except what is God granted. And the authorities that be, the people in places of civil leadership, are ordained of God. And I go down to verse 4, for he is the minister, referring to people in particularly law enforcement. The police is the, the policeman and policewoman is the minister of God to thee for good. Now, he calls them a, God's ministers. Now, step back and stop and think. He's not saying that every policeman is a godly person because we know they're not. We know that sometimes they just are about as, some of them are as ungodly as the people they're chasing. On the other hand, he's not talking about their personal life. He's talking about the position they hold in society. He is saying this, they are not God's ministers because they are godly themselves, but because they serve God's purpose. And God's purpose is that they hold back the forces of evil, the forces of darkness that would destroy a culture, that would destroy the people. They restrain evil and they encourage good behavior. Notice what he says there in verse 4. He beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath, judgment upon those that do evil. The sword there refers to capital punishment, which God gave the government, the authority in extreme cases to make people pay for their crimes with their life. But it's something else, too. It refers to the lethal force. The policeman wears a gun. He has a taser. He does that because he's dealing sometimes with such evil forces they would destroy him as he tried to enforce the law. He has to do so. The great majority of our police 
are law-abiding and good people trying to serve us. There's a minority, a small percentage of them, that we've seen in recent times have done, have, have done some very evil deeds. And we don't, we don't for one moment defend that. But what would our nation be like if there were no police? What would it be like if you laid down at night and you triple locked your doors and got your shotgun cocked and ready because you knew that if an intruder, a robber, or a killer, or a rapist came to your door, there is nobody for you to call on. That's what he's talking about right here. The purpose of law enforcement is to hold back evil, to restrain sin. And it takes great force, in fact, to restrain sin, does it, does it not? For the life of me, I don't understand why people in America are talking about defunding the police. And in a, in a time when we have an absolute wave of violence in the country, it seems like we need to be hiring more law enforcement, not less. Satan would like to do away with your conscience. He would like to do away with your family. He would like to do away with the restraining forces of law enforcement within the community and turn us over to evil. I was speaking the other day with someone, and they used this term to me. They said there is a spirit of delusion right now in America. And I thought, I believe that's true. I certainly don't want to overstate the case. But why can't we see that many of the things we're doing in our culture, in our family life, our governmental life, our personal lives, why can't we see where this is going to go? You know, rebellion, revolution, anarchy is like a fire. It's like the forest fires out in California. They'll burn as long as there's something for something combustible to burn unless somebody comes and puts them out. As I said in the introduction to the message, sin is like a monster within. It won't stop eating. It consumes unless it's restrained. The law of God written in the heart restrains it. The family restrains it. Law enforcement restrains it. And lastly, if you'll turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, you will see that the church restrains it. The fourth of the hedges is the church. Matthew chapter 5 is the Famous passage, I don't even need to read it with you. You can probably quote it. You're the light of the world. And a city that's built on a hill cannot be hidden, the Lord Jesus Christ said. He said this to his disciples, and a few chapters later, he organized them into the first local church. So he's talking to the pillars, the foundation stones of his church that he's going to be organizing in chapter 16. And so the fourth hedge, 
The fourth restraint against sin is the church. How does the church restrain evil? I'll give you three ways real quick. First of all, the church restrains evil when it proclaims the gospel of Christ. Now, that seems so simple, but let me, let me explain to you in case you don't understand how that works. The church restrains sin by its proclamation of the gospel. Here's a person whose life is completely given to wickedness and to evil, and they come to a church, and they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. Maybe they've never heard it before, or they used to hear it, but they've wandered from it. It doesn't matter. Now they come, and for the first time in a while, they sit here, and the preacher tells them about the cross that I preached on last Sunday morning. The pastor talks to them about repentance of their sin, that it's never too late for them to turn and to head to the cross of Christ. The pastor tells them that Jesus died for their sins, that he poured out his blood, and there's no person on the planet that he will not forgive if they will come to him in repentance and saving faith. And they believe it. They hear it. They believe it. They respond, and they come, and they receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And then God starts doing a work. You see, the Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creation. The Bible says he is regenerated, meaning he is given a whole new spiritual life. God doesn't reform an old man. God regenerates him and gives him a new life. He's a new person. Now, that new person is not going to be doing the things that man did before he was saved. In that sense, sin has been restrained. Here's a man now who is seeking to please the Lord, where previously he was living to please himself. Everything about his life was a selfish and, and sinful life. Now he's living a godly life. Sin has been restrained. It's been held back by that man's conversion. So the church restrains evil by its proclamation of the gospel. But secondly, the church restrains sin by its moral instruction. And I'm instructing you. I've instructed a number of moral things here this morning. Over there, our children are in the children's worship service. What are we doing? We're instructing them. We're teaching them we have a big emphasis right now as I speak on teaching them character, enlightening their conscience, training them that it's a better way of life to live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ and, and to live your life for God. We warn them about the hazards of sins that they could fall into. And so, the moral instruction gives light. It gives guidance. It gives wisdom for life. It restrains evil. And the church restrains evil by its emotional support. You see, right now we're going through this COVID thing. We need the emotional support, the fellowship of the, of the saints, if it, as it were. And though, very frankly, we're restrained from doing a very good job of it, but we need to come together. And when we fear, there's a support system for our fears. When we're tempted, there's a support system for our temptations. We need 
the church to strengthen us, to support us emotionally and spiritually. We need to know that we're not in this alone. And so the church restrains evil by its emotional support of people, strengthening them to face the trials and the, and the tribulations of life. Churches that are true to God's Word restrain sin. Nations that enforce God's moral law restrain sin. Families that train their children in the way of God restrain sin. Individuals who keep their consciences clear restrain sin in their own life. May I be personal for just a moment? Do you need to rebuild and restore one of those hedges? Repair one of those hedges, one of those walls of protection in your life? Is your conscience today clear? Is there a sin that when I talk about sin, it's, as David said, ever before my eyes? Is there some habit that you've developed that you've just kind of slid into it, a carelessness in your life, and has led you away from the fellowship that you once knew with the Lord? Today, you can have a clean conscience. You can confess your sins, and if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Last week, I talked to you about the cross, the blood of Jesus Christ that is the most powerful sin-cleansing agent in all of eternity. Are you carrying out your family responsibilities, parents? Are you making sure that your children know the path of righteousness from the path of sin and evil? Are we having our family altar times? Are we stopping and instructing the children? Don't, don't leave it all to the church. Don't, don't leave it all to the Christian school or to anyone else. Don't leave it to the Sunday school teacher. I challenge you to be the primary trainer and discipler of your children. And what about our nation? Are we praying? Are we fervently praying right now? For the very first time in my life, the thoughts have crossed my mind that we could possibly lose America as we've known it. We could lose it. 40% of the college students say, I'd prefer we went the socialist route. You see, the hedge needs to be strengthened and rebuilt. And are you keeping the church strong? Your attendance, your tithes, your service to the Lord? Boy, if ever we... We've needed to be that lighthouse over there. It's this morning. Because that light is a restraint to hold back the forces of darkness. If you're not saved today, let me tell you, you're vulnerable. Unsaved people don't realize this. 
We started out talking about Satan coming before the Lord and saying, have you considered your servant Job? You take down your wall of protection and um, he won't serve you anymore. Satan acknowledged that there is a wall of protection around a Christian. If you are saved today, we, we use the term you're under the blood, that there is a spiritual protection that you and I enjoy as believers that unsaved people don't enjoy. And if you're an unsaved person today and you're a Christ rejecter, may I warn you of this as sternly as I possibly can. If you are not in Christ, you are vulnerable to Satan moving in and destroying your life. You have no protection. There is no hedge because you've rejected what God's plan is for you. And that I would beg you today on my hands and my knees, my friend, that you turn to Christ this morning. You repent of your sins. You receive the salvation that he earned for you at Calvary's cross through the shedding of his blood. You come to him today and enjoy God's presence and his reality in your life. Would you stand with me to your feet? Would you bow your head, please?